forget who it was from BBC. He said, the thing that scares me most is an animal rights activist. Yeah. More than terrorism, more than any other controversial subject. He said he just doesn't want to deal with animal rights activists. And looking at the pitch table of like 40 different broadcasters or whatever it was, they all nodded their head. So that really showed me that it was going to be an uphill battle. What you just heard was a quote from an interview with Alethea Amakubero. And she was talking about some of the challenges she faced when making her first film, Angry Inuk, which I'm sure many of you have heard about because it did so well at last year's Hot Docs. The film is a very poignant and personal story about the importance of seal hunting to the Inuit in Canada, not just for subsistence living, but also for commercial purposes. And I really enjoyed uh, our time talking with Althea because she spoke so candidly about a lot of the challenges she faced when trying to pitch her film to the industry and how it was such a long process for her to make the film. Yeah, and I think it's not a very unique story in some sense. So it was really great for her to be so honest about it, that when you are a filmmaker trying to work on your first film, you face so many challenges and how do you actually make it through and how do you stay committed? Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people don't realize that documentary filmmaking is quite an expensive endeavor. It's not as DIY as it's sometimes portrayed. And um, you're really asking for people in the industry to invest a lot of money, hundreds of thousands of dollars into your project, which is not an easy thing to do when you're a first time filmmaker. Yeah. And I think, I mean, what is the For those of you who don't know, like a low-cost feature documentary is somewhere at four hundred to five hundred thousand. So that's half a million dollars, and higher end is seven hundred, eight hundred thousand. And you know, I think funders and broadcasters do something that's called risk assessment, where they look at, you know, this is a filmmaker who doesn't have a track record. How do we trust them? Who are they teaming up with? Who is their producer? Are they going to deliver a quality project? So I think all of those questions are on the funder's end, but you yourself are so committed. So it's so hard to think about why they wouldn't trust you when you've put in so much time already, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, Althea did it. She, after eight years of working very hard, made an incredible film. But it's interesting. In reflection, she talks a lot about the emotional toll it also took on her. Yeah, and I think your self-confidence sometimes takes a hit when you go into a meeting and someone says to you, well, I don't like your characters or says, are you the right person to tell this story? Like, how do you then go home and, you know, commit yourself to going to the next meeting? Mm -hmm. Or how do you stay on board for years to come? And she herself, and I think one part I really loved is when Althea talks in this interview about um, going to the first few festivals by herself with no one behind her Mm -hmm. and getting the courage to talk to funders and to talk to people and introduce yourself. Mm -hmm. So here she is talking more about why she was inspired to make this film other challenges she faced, and uh, what she has next up her sleeve. Alethea, maybe we can start with you telling us what your film is about. Hmm. (laughs) You'd think after doing this a thousand times, you'd get better at it, but... (laughs) Um, I guess, basically, it's about how Inuit have been affected by animal rights activists that have campaigned against seal hunting for a very long time. And although Inuit are the majority of commercial seal hunters, uh, most people seem to not be aware that we are the main people affected by those anti-seal hunt campaigns. So tell us, why did you decide to use film as a medium to tell this story? Um... I think it's just a natural choice for me because I'm already a documentary filmmaker. 
Um, but also Inuit have tried to have our voice heard on this issue for decades. And for some reason, the world just didn't really pay attention to our plight on this issue. Um, our political leaders have spoken out, our hunters associations, but year after year, we're, we're sort of invisible, we're ignored. So since documentary filmmaking is my skill set, I felt like I, ha- I had to make this film. I just at some point couldn't not make this film. How does the film sort of fit into your trajectory as a filmmaker? Like, are most of your films very political? Or do you feel like this is probably the most political of them? I think, I think there's a commonality between my films. You know, a friend pointed this out to me, and I, I wasn't even really conscious of it. But she said, you know, I love it. Your, all your work is about unshaming. And when she said that, it was kind of an aha moment for me. Um, It's like a beautiful way to put it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I, I made a film about traditional Inuit tattoos, which had been um, not legally forbidden, but socially forbidden for nearly a century. So I, I made a film about their their history and the reasons why they disappeared in my own journey to recover the tradition. And I've, you know, I've made uh, some short films that are also, you know, one is about two Inuit lesbians set in the 1950s when Inuit were kind of being forced off of the land, out of our semi-nomadic culture into more sedentary communities. And so it was kind of about that shift where everything was out of our control and even our family structure was not allowed anymore. So it was, you know, it was two lesbians in the story, but it was also a plural marriage where, you know, back then um, a woman could have two husbands or a man could have two wives and that suddenly became illegal. So they're all kind of... um, you know, in a way, rejecting the shame that um, different entities tried to put on us. So the government, the church, and in, in more modern times, the environment, environmental and animal rights groups. So I think when I see ourselves portrayed in a negative way unfairly, I have to try to correct that in my own small way. And your film has a very personal tone as a result. How is it? Uh, how is the process researching for a film when you're coming at it from that personal perspective? Where do you start? It was interesting because there's so much out there on the internet about seal hunting. <laughs> there's so much out there, um, but none of it looks anything like what I grew up seeing firsthand of seal hunting. And I was just blown away at how confidently and passionately people spoke about seal hunting without ever having witnessed it with their own eyes. So I spent a lot of time online reading the sites of animal rights groups, um, following specific people who are very active on the issue. Some of them are staff of these groups and some of them are just independent individuals but extremely active on social media and they'll they kind of follow those hashtags uh, the seal hunt and, and those kinds of hashtags obsessively and I spent I think a lot too much time <laughs> um, watching what they say and how they react to certain situations and patterns started to emerge uh, to me and I think through that I came to see the pattern that they kind of paint Inuit, first of all, they try to if, ignore the fact that Inuit exist and that, you know, that we're seal hunters and part of the commercial market. But when pressed to talk about Inuit, they always say, oh, we're not against Inuit. We've never campaigned against Inuit. We're totally fine with the Inuit subsistence hunting. We're concentrating on the, on, on the commercial hunt done by big, bad, evil white guys. That's basically the messaging that they have. And it took me a while to kind of unpack their their 
prepared statements, and I realized that they were kind of falsely painting us as purely subsistence hunters. And and it even as an Inuk took me a while to see that because uh, we do hunt for subsistence. Um, we hunt a lot of different animals for subsistence, and many Inuit hunt seals purely for subsistence. But there are also thousands of Inuit that hunt seals commercially, and although they might share the meat for free, with their uh, family and friends, they sell the seal skin and are therefore part of the commercial seal skin market. And it took me a long time to, to realize that that word subsistence they were using to kind of um, paint us as simple, you know, having simple lives out in the country, untouched by you know, uh, international trade. Uh, and really not just using that word, but a lot of their language um, when you look at it in, in a big picture, is painting us as a primitive people. Um, and therefore, you know, we, we couldn't possibly be dealing in, in international trade of any kind of product. So uh, it, it took a long time to not just do the research, but to absorb what they're trying to say with it. I guess maybe we can talk a little bit about the trajectory of making this film. Your film, you know, you have these personal sort of moments in the film and so on. Um, But before you took it sort of more internationally speaking, how did it work for you to get sort of the funding and the support? You started from a personal standpoint. Did you then sort of look for a backup or how did the National Film Board get involved? I had no idea what I was doing when I started. <laughs> um, I showed up at Hot Docs one year and took part in those one-on-one um, -on -one meetings. I forget what they're called, the... Uh, The program. Anyway, you apply and you can get one-on-one -on -one meetings with other producers or distributors or uh, broadcasters. And Jan Rofkamp mm. took a meeting with me. Right. He's the guy from... Uh, Films Transit International. Yeah. Uh, and although I didn't end up working with him, he really got me going on the project. Um, he said, you've got a real issue here. There is a real story to be told here. And I know you'll figure out a good way to tell it, but you really need a producer someone uh, with experience that can support you and make sure you get the, the funding you need to make it happen, but also give you a bit of that outside perspective so that you're not too close to the issue. Um, because the issue is so controversial, the emotions are so high on both sides that sometimes you need um, somebody's eye that isn't so emotionally invested in it. And that was such good advice. <laughs> so he said, come to IDFA this fall. Um, that was back in 2008. And I did. He suggested I apply for the, the pitching forum there. Uh, and I did. And I pitched uh, at IDFA. Um, my friend and Stacy and I did a, a public pitch there, which was absolutely terrifying. <laughs> um, but an excellent experience. And um, the feedback I got there was you know, basically that I told them about the issue and how unfair the situation was, but I hadn't really told them what the story is, um, what the personal angles are and what it's going to look like. Um, and that, I mean, these are all very beginner things to, um, to describe in your pitch. And I, I just didn't know that yet. So it was, but watching other people pitch was also a huge learning experience, which I did both at, um, I was an observer at the hot docs forum and at the IFA forum. And I felt like that was university for me. And so at IFA, I caught up with Jan Roughcamp as he told me to, and he 
as we were chatting, uh, he said, okay, so we got to find your producer. And he looked around the room and he saw Dan Cross from across the room. And he said, hey, Dan. And Dan came over. He said, you're producing her next film. And Dan said, okay. (laughs) And then he walked away. He didn't even ask what it was about. (laughs) And Dan's from I Steel. Yes, Dan is from I Steel Film. Um, And uh, Jan said, okay, so just uh, find a time and meet with him while you're here. And I I was like, what just happened? I don't even really, what what do you mean? Um, Because um, Jan had asked me, who I want to produce, and I said, I don't know anybody. And he said, well, what films have you seen that you admire? And I said, I don't know. I mean, and I was trying to think of the recent documentaries that I'd seen that I liked, and I said, of course, Last Train Home and Up the Yangtze, and I think, like, four of the five films that I named were I Steal Productions, and I didn't know they were all from the same company. And he said, okay, well, and that's why he looked across the room and called Dan over. And Dan was... He, he stood by his word. He uh, met with me, and he and Mila and Bob met with me, and they've held my hand through the whole process, really. Um, they pulled out of me what the, the answers to the questions that I didn't have at IDFA. And so we went to the Sheffield Meat Market, and it was a long haul. I think about four years in, the NFB came on board. And it was an eight-year process overall. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, in your film, you kind of talk about sort of some of the cultural differences in um, how you approach a subject. For mm-hmm. example, you say that the Inuit are a lot more um, have understated anger mm-hmm. or are not direct confronters. Yeah. And then I kind of was wondering when I heard that, I was like, well, how do you make a film then in the film industry in Canada that is so restrictive and so deadline driven and has a structure? So I was wondering sort of what were some of the biggest challenges in trying to (laughs) fit a different cultural mode (laughs) into what seems to be a really rigid structure? I pissed off a lot of people, I think. (laughs) Um, Poor Bob Um, at I Steal Film. Um, I mean, I shouldn't say poor Bob. He can handle himself just fine. But I think he had to lobby on my behalf a lot um, when delays happen, when, you know, court cases were delayed and when, you know, I'm in the north and we don't have enough money and I can't travel or, you know. And when, you know, both Bonnie, um, all three of them actually, Bonnie and Bob and Dan were extremely understanding with me once I explained. There was a point I had to take a year off making the film um, because it was just... Uh, so emotionally exhausting. There's a point in the film where we're doing this social media campaign called the Seal Fee, where Inuit would take pictures of themselves wearing seal skin and post their seal fees um, online. And because I was so active in that hashtag and asking people to post them and then talking with and debating with animal rights activists online who commented on these seal fee photos, um, I, I was exposed to a lot of Twitter vitriol, which we all know can be pretty nasty. And, you know, above and beyond the usual trolls that are out there, the animal rights world is kind of especially um, hardcore in a lot of ways. So I think that kind of uh, angry, confrontational personality is drawn to the animal rights world. And it was not fun um, for several months and there was a point where I just couldn't deal anymore I I didn't really go on social media for a long time I'd adopted a baby (laughs) I kind of just shut down 
and not in a self-aware, like, I need some self-care kind of way, you know. It was, like, just meltdown, not answer my emails. And, um, of course, all my producers being thousands of kilometers away were like, what is going on? Are you okay? And and I, I had a hard time even explaining what I was going through and why I was kind of retreating into my turtle shell or whatever. <laughs> um, but once I kind of even became aware of what I was doing and why I was doing it and explained it to them. They were extremely supportive and said, do what you need to do and um, talk to the broadcasters and negotiated that that side of things for me so I could have the space and time to gather my wits mm-hmm. and go at it again. And, and um, I really needed that time away. And when I took it, I came back with a new energy and determination to finish the film because another season of, of seal hunting goes by and therefore all the animal rights activists come out again every spring and it you know, it just got me mad all over again. <laughs> Not enough to finish the film. <laughs> yeah, I think like as a filmmaker hearing other people talk about the depression and the waves of filmmaking mm-hmm. is so useful. I feel like mm-hmm. that you speak about it publicly and you did at Hot Docs as well. Mm-hmm. I think it's good for people to hear, especially when it's a subject that's so close to your heart, you know? Yeah, and uh, recently I saw um, Adam Garnett-Jones, who's a a fiction filmmaker, yeah, (laughs) beautiful filmmaker. He posted something about this, the um, imposter syndrome, feeling like I don't really want to know what I'm doing and any minute now people are going to figure it out. That was one of those things that was so useful for me to hear too, like, okay, it's not just me. And the number of people that commented saying, oh my God, I feel that way too, and they're all like amazing filmmakers um, it, it's reassuring for sure. So I, I tried to not hesitate to talk about the documentary filmmaking induced depression that I've gone through. Because, um, of course, every audience is, is different. But um, now I feel like no matter where I screen it, it's probably not going to be a total bomb. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, to clarify, you won the Audience Choice Award in Hot Talks, which is a lot. Everyone was gunning for it. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty amazing. That was a big deal. I I was stunned. Um, It wasn't a surprise. It wasn't a surprise? Oh, I was shocked. Really? Yes, I was shocked. Um, I wasn't keeping track. Afterward, I could see on the charts like that the festival was tracking it through the, but I, I didn't know that was there and I didn't yeah yeah it was you and the apology yeah <laughs> you flip sides sometimes yeah yeah. Uh, yeah so when I when I finally saw those um, and the listings on yeah. the hot doc site that you could see that it was between those two I was like wow that's amazing I won but I also wish that the apology could have won too it, I mean yeah. it's such a beautiful film and she's so having a good run too yes, so you yeah. both are doing great in the world <laughs> <laughs> and the funny thing is she and I met eight years before at Hot Docs, trying to pitch our projects at the same time. Oh, we are both, you joking? No, we both had no producers, no money, and we wow. were chatting in one of the uh, happy hours after the, I think it was, was it the forum, or I can't remember what, but yeah, yeah eight years before. Uh, oh, no, sorry, it was six, it, I took eight years to make the film, but it was six years before that we had both met at Hot Docs and had no money and no producers. So. And it's such a testament that to to make these kind of films, these profound films, it does usually take a lot of time. People don't understand how yeah. much time goes. Yeah, and also I think so much commitment. You know, mm-hmm. I feel like documentary yeah. filmmaking is not going to be, it's not going to make you rich immediately. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not ever. <laughs> yes, but if you have the passion, I mean, I feel like there's a reception, you know, mm-hmm. it's an appreciation on the other end. Yeah. 
Um, I guess I also really wanted to know because your film did have a great reception at Hot Dogs and you, you screened just at Imaginative and it also had a great reception there. What were some of the immediate repercussions of releasing it into the world? You know, you were speaking to people in the film that never responded to you. Greenpeace activists who never responded to your emails and so on. So what were some of the things that you felt like really the film helped? Uh, did you get a call back from Greenpeace? I did. Yeah, I did. And some of the people who had never talked to me before showed up at the screening at Hot Docs and um, talked to me, asked for meetings. It's been a, It's been a mixed bag of reactions from the animal groups. You know, people like Paul Watson and the Sea Shepherd Society and Rebecca Aldworth from the Humane Society, not a peep from them. They're just going to continue um, uh, avoiding Inuit or the subject of Inuit as long as they can, I guess. It's scary for them, you know. It's it's uh, The seal hunt is a big money maker for them, and Inuit complicate their fundraising campaigns. So I'm not surprised that some of them just ignored. But... Um, Cheryl Fink from the International Fund for Animal Welfare actually came to the screening and came up to me after and said, I'm not avoiding you, I'm not avoiding you. <laughs> and she and she did, to her credit, go on the radio. We went on The Current with Anna Maria Tremonti on the CBC, which is nationally broadcast. Um, so that was um, simultaneously really frustrating and satisfying because I finally got to have a conversation with her. Um where I could really question and debate with her. Before the screening, she had actually started to respond to my emails um, and had said, oh, yeah, sure, we can talk. And then I'd tell her, I'm in Montreal editing the film, but it's not too late. You know, maybe we could talk. I'm in town for another couple of weeks. I drive to Toronto, I don't, wherever you are, I'll, I'll drive. Um, and then, you know, she'd respond to say, oh, yeah, sure, can you meet? Um, she'd respond a couple weeks later to say, can you meet next week? But I had said that I was going to be only in town for that two-week period. So the scheduling never worked out. And I, I, I felt like it was kind of deliberate that she'd respond to say yes, but at the wrong time. And then when I asked if she would uh, speak with, do a Skype interview with me instead, she just didn't respond to that email. And then when we were talking to the CBC leading up to our joint interview, she sent the CBC a bunch of emails between her and I showing that she had agreed to be interviewed. So kind of trying to imply that I'm full of shit when I said she won't uh, agree to an interview with me. But really, she just was never available and then wouldn't do the Skype interview. So I, I feel like it, it's been kind of a dishonest reaction and, and willingness from her um, because in our email conversations and Twitter conversations, um, I would I tell her so many things like that, that Inuit are commercial sealers, that we, there are more of us than there are uh, in Newfoundland and, and in Quebec, um, you know, all kinds of facts that, and I'd show her the backup, but she, in the national interview, radio interview, she would say all the same things over again that she knew to be untrue, and it was just kind of mind-blowing to me, so... I kind of feel like I haven't made progress for, with most of the groups, but Greenpeace um, has at least tried to have a conversation. Um, I think knowing that the film was coming out, they knew it was going to look bad, um, that they had to try to do something. So they asked to meet with me um, during the week, the hot dogs week, and so... Ayu, my main character, and I um, agreed to meet with them with a few um, caveats. 
and one was that they weren't to um, use the meeting as positive PR for their organization, like, oh, we're working with the Inuit now and we're talking with the Inuit because we're just two artists, like we're not representative of the whole group and we're not elected officials or anything. Um, Basically, we're just two individuals there to give them feedback about their campaigns. So I felt like we had a good conversation. There were points. I think we met in this room for like maybe two or three hours, um, and there were points where I just wanted to throw things. (laughs) And there were tears, and there was anger, and... um, There were moments where I was just, we were looking at each other across the table and we were like, you have no idea what you're talking about and how how do you still not get this? Um, But by the end, I think we made some headway and it felt like there was some genuine desire to try to start undoing the damage. So I was hopeful coming out of that meeting, uh, but also realistic. I guess, I don't know, because I feel like, you know, you hear, oh, well, you see the film and then you think, oh, this is going to really change things. So mm-hmm. it's interesting to hear that it's disappointing that it hasn't. It is disappointing. And, you know, it just makes me realize that those groups aren't going to change at all until they're the people who give them money require them to. So, you know, now, now my strategy is to encourage people to not donate to them until they change their policies and not just change their policies to stop doing damage, but actually take action to reverse damage, um, like to reverse the bans on seal products in Europe and the States, or at least start putting out the message that our hunters are, are the guardians uh, and that the guardians need to be empowered because it's not just about seals. It's the polar bears. It's our narwhal. It's all of our animals are beautiful and exotic creatures to everyone else. <laughs> to us, they're, of course, beautiful and important but they're they're our everyday animals that's our everyday food so you know now polar bears are the face of climate change so everywhere we turn it's the same problem and it's got to be it's got to be attacked at its root and that is the idea that people who live off animals are evil that's got to be turned around because it's actually those are the people fighting to protect them It was whale hunters that created um, a whale sanctuary in the Arctic. Um, Just, it's so misunderstood. Mm -hmm. And um, these groups need to be, not not only because it's the right thing to do for Inuit and how unfair that situation has been for us, but for actual environment and animal advocacy, it's important that they empower the hunters because that's who's actually doing the protecting out there. Yeah, and if you think about the forefront of like people fighting climate change, I mean, this seems like the thing. For, here, it seems like in the last two years, it's gathered some sort of speed. But you yeah. think about you know First Nations communities and mm-hmm. Inuit struggling for decades yeah. to preserve forests and their own. You know, Sheila Watkute yeah. was out there lobbying about um, global warming and climate change yeah. way back when people had no idea what that yeah. was. And when then, you know, yeah, yeah, and the rhythm of the land in a way. You're yeah. Like, what? Yeah. This is she, not uh, she was nominated right along with Al Gore for the Nobel Peace Prize on climate change change um for their climate change work he got the award and she didn't unfortunately yeah were there any films that really or any filmmakers in particular that were of an Inuit or First Nations background that really inspired you in making this film whose Um, work you thought about or whose work really that's a really good question I mean certainly Inuit storytelling is a huge thing for me and of course people like Zach are always an inspiration I think um Back when I was making the tattoo documentary, 
when I started the project, Adonatra wasn't done yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I would tell friends that I was interested in getting traditional Inuit face tattoos, some of my friends were like, what are you talking about? They, they didn't even know they existed, that the tradition existed. And then when his um, Atanajua, the Fast Runner film, came out, um, and all the women in that film had makeup uh, tattoos on, suddenly everyone knew that there was such a thing as traditional Inuit women's tattoos. And that really showed me the power of, of filmmaking and storytelling to even just, it was just, it wasn't even discussed in the film. It was just part of the makeup and wardrobe. But suddenly a whole new generation of Inuit knew what that tradition is um, or that it existed. And that that was amazing to me and really encouraged me to stick with it when I was making that film. So certainly I've had um, inspiration from, from Inuit filmmakers. But also, you know, when I look back through Inuit film... The very first film that was made by an Inuk was by Moshe Michael out of Cape Dorset, and it was of a man seal hunting. <laughs> um, and my namesake's husband, Peter Pitsiola, was the first uh, Inuit photographer, um, and his first images that he ever took were of Inuit seal hunting. And when I took an animation workshop and a bunch of youth took the workshop, so many of the little short um, practice animations that people made were about seal hunting because it's just like people think, okay, I'm going to make something that represents us as a, as a people. What's this going to be about? It was, it's always seal hunting. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think the history of Inuit telling stories and making films, it, you know, seal hunting is just woven throughout all of it. So um, it's just so important. It's just a, such a part of who we are. Um, but I was also very much inspired by um, uh, Tracy Deer's work. She's she's not Inuit, she's Mohawk, but she made films that were about um, issues of identity and um, she was totally bold in questioning not just white Canadian society and how they define what it is to be Native, but also questioning her own community and how they handle those questions and really pushing both sides to reassess how we look at at those things. And I was amazed at how she was able to really challenge people's thinking, but do it respectfully. And it it was thought-provoking without being in-your-face kind of um, hitting you over the head with it. And I, I really love her films for that and her she was so brave the way she was so brave your film just screened at imaginative mm-hmm. uh, earlier this month and you mentioned before we we turned the mic on that the the audience reaction was a little bit different than at hot dogs can yeah. you expand on that <laughs> yeah i think um i mean i think indigenous people everywhere are used to being like used to oppression and used to <laughs> really unfair situations i think people were less shocked by it than than um the broader uh, hot docs audience they're they're pissed off um at the situation and by the end of it ready to stand in solidarity with Inuit on the issue um but definitely less like not not less appalled but just less surprised about it all people at hot docs were like I can't believe this this is unbelievable is this really happening in our country you know <laughs> whereas at, at imaginative it's like oh yeah here we go again I didn't I didn't know about this but I'm not surprised and I'm really glad I know about this now because I can help advocate on the issue but I also found the imaginative audience laughed way harder 
and more often um, than the hot dogs audience. And I, that's probably just sharing an indigenous sense of humor that I don't even understand how or why, but they just found it way funner. Maybe they, maybe it's just easier for them to laugh loud. I don't know. <laughs> maybe it's a cultural thing. I have no idea. <laughs> what a solidarity thing. We go, yes, <laughs> yeah. I recognize this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I guess... I mean, in closing, I only have one other question. Maya, we'll see if you have any others. But I wondered, what are you working on next? Do you feel like a real pressure to sort of move on right away? Because everyone knows you right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't feel pressure to move on right away. And I think it's because of, of the documentary-induced depression. Uh, I now know better to be more um, self-aware and take care of my own mental health. So, I mean, I've got a, a few things in the long-term uh, cooker. <laughs> But in terms of doing something immediately, I, the only thing I've got on the go um, in the immediate future is a, a very short, small uh, VR project with Imaginative for the Canada 150. So there's a group project happening with me and Kent Muckman and a bunch of people who I'm just like, awe-inspired to be um, part of the same project. So I'll be doing that. Uh, I'm excited to learn about VR and, and try something new and also do something that's not super heavy and um, emotionally taxing. So I want to do something that's short and fun and beautiful. And then we'll see what I take on next. <laughs> That was Althea, the director of Angry Inuk, talking about her experience making the film. And I really love that interview because she was just so honest about um, a lot of the challenges she faced and how it affected her very personally. But it's so interesting, Aisha, you were a programmer at Hot Docs last year when this film premiered and it was it was a huge success. Yeah, it was kind of like the the film that was on everyone's lips. Like if you ask people what the top three films were, I mean, it had such a sold out audience three times in a row. Um, and it also won the audience choice, as I mentioned. And I ran into uh, Alethea with her film in France recently at a different festival. And there, too, you know, it was a film that was played to their version of Docs in School. Yeah. And it was also in competition, the only Canadian documentary that was. So it's been doing the rounds and it's been getting great reviews. It was at the Berlin Film Fest recently as well. So she's underselling the success of this film. Yeah, and I'm really excited to see her next project for Canada 150. And I know there's a lot of organizations, a lot of projects right now working on stuff for Canada 150. Aisha, you're working on something yourself. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, Hot Dogs, TIFF, Imaginative. Everybody is doing a series for the 150, everybody under different banners. So the Hot Dogs one is called In the Name of All Canadians. And the films are also critical looks, but also positive looks at the charter the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which a lot of Canadians don't know much about. Um, so I'm really excited to see what everybody comes up with, including myself. Me too. Can't wait. So thank you for tuning in to the first episode of Season two of The Gaze, which is now a podcast that you can find on iTunes. You can download and listen to our show um, from anywhere. So we hope that you tune in for our next two episodes, and we'll see you soon.